Okay, good morning everyone. We'll try that again. It's always awkward the first time when you break into the conversation. So good morning everyone. It's, uh, it's great, to be, great to be with you all this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be pressing in a little bit more into the series that, that Paul started last week around friends and family. And this morning, I want us to think uh, about this idea of coming home. We're going to go to a very, very familiar uh, part of Scripture, but hopefully God will, uh, will speak fresh things uh, into our lives as we, as we unpack that. Uh, coming home is a great thing. Uh, I have spent uh, the majority of the last six weeks in different parts of the world in Burma and, and in Ethiopia, and there's something about that moment uh, whenever you get ready to leave. I'm one of those people that have, well, I'm completely reformed now, completely Laura Farrell's doing. I now pack my bag a week before I go. Look at that. So I'm like, I'm ready. I'm ready for the flight, but there's always this moment, and it's the moment that, if I'm honest, I always find it the hardest. It's, uh, it's moments like this here. This was Belfast City Airport about six weeks ago, and my mum and dad had brought the kids down and they wanted to come into the airport and you sort of gather together and you give them a hug and you say, look, I'll see you in a, in a few weeks' time and all the rest. And, and then there's this moment just as you're about to step into that little bit as you disappear through security and, and you turn to give that, that last wave, that last wave for a couple of weeks and, and you see your kids bombing off with your parents because they've been <laughs> promised ice cream and they're like, yeah, see ya. Like another time, Dad, another time. And, and so there's moments, but, but it's in those moments that I guess that it reminds you so much of the significance of, of family. It reminds you so much of the significance of, of the place that we call home. And uh, I read these words this week uh, by Erwin McManus. He said, home is ultimately not about a place to live, but about the people with whom you are most fully alive. Home is about love, relationship, community, and belonging. And we're all searching for home. And if I'm honest, whenever I'm away, when I was in Burma, when I was in Ethiopia, things are so busy that you spend these occasional moments where you dip in and you send a quick message home and you check everyone's okay, but, but life kind of moves at a pace. And, and then there's always this point, and there's normally a day or two before the end of the trip, and, and my heart just kind of goes, it's time to be home. It's, it's time to be back. It's time to go and to, to see the kids and to see Laura and to share stories and to spend time in that place that we call home. But uh, homecomings can be interesting for numerous reasons and, and homecomings don't always necessarily go quite as planned. So uh, when I went to Burma the first time about three years ago, uh, if I'm honest, Karis didn't really like me much until that point in life. And then I came back from Burma. I'd been there for three weeks and Karis was like, oh, you're amazing. You're so much fun. And so I thought the same might happen with Matthew this time around. I thought he's going to realize what he's missed for a while. This is the, the Burma effect. And, and so I was home. I was home no more than, than 24 hours. And we were sitting down and we were having dinner together. And, and Matthew turned and he looked at me, that, that knowing look that I knew that whatever was going to be said next was going to so profoundly sum up the father-son relationship it was caught on camera. Have a look at this. It was funny the first time. He was still saying it when I went to Ethiopia two weeks later. <laughs> Thankfully, Ethiopia broke him a little bit, but uh, last laughs on him, I haven't written my will yet, so uh, he's, 
it's not not going to feature, not going to feature. But sometimes homecomings don't go in, in the way that we anticipate, in the way that we expect. And as I say, we're going to be in a familiar passage this morning. It's a moment where a son comes home um, and he, he gets a reaction that it wasn't the one that he was anticipating. It wasn't the one that he was expecting. So if you have your Bible or you have an app on your phone, flick to, to Luke 15. Uh, Luke 15 is, is a trilogy of parables that Jesus tells. We're going to jump into the third of the three. Um, But if we jump in there, we miss something really important. Uh, We miss the context of of who Jesus is talking to. So verses 1 and 2 in Luke 15, and then we'll bounce down uh, to the main passage. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so we find out about four people. Now, the first group of people that we have mentioned are the tax collectors. If we know anything about the Bible, we know uh, that these people are never looked upon that favorably. The Roman Empire was huge. It extended from England to India. And the only way that you could ever maintain control, the only way that you could keep the status quo was to have an enormous army. And the only way to pay for that army was taxes. And so tax collectors were not, sometimes I think we jumped to Zacchaeus, the wee little man who had no friends, climbed up into a tree, took a wee bit more off people, then gave some of it back, and almost kind of misses a little bit of it. These are people, your neighbors, people that you knew who had sold out, who had bought the right from Rome to collect money to fund the regime that was oppressing you, that was over you. And so these are people that had gone against everything that, that maybe your little part of the country stood for. And, and yet, these are people that Jesus wanted to spend time with. And yet everybody else, as they looked upon them, they looked upon them as being agents of, of the enemy, agents of the empire that was so against where their values were. And then we're told we have sinners, this group of people, this group of people that would have been comprised of very many people, always considered by the culture of the day to be the outsiders. So we know that in this group, uh, Jesus would often have spoken to and healed people uh, who were disabled. He would have met with those who were disowned. He would have spent time with those who had jobs of disrepute. And so it's this whole category of people. And we're then told about the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're there and they're muttering their religious utterances. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, these were probably some of the holiest people that you could ever meet. I don't know about you. I, I feel good if I make it up for a dawn service, right? Or if I finish a book that I've been reading, I'm like, all right, yes. 10 out of 10, good marks. These are people that had the Torah, the first five books memorized. Like they didn't have to flick through or, or Google it or Bible Gateway. They were just like, oh yeah, I know that. They, they were the most religious elite people and, and they lived from that place. They replaced the relationship that was there with the Father for a relationship with law, with ticking boxes, with showing to others just how good they were. And so it's into this context that Jesus shares this story. It's a very, very diverse group of people. And it's stories like this uh, that are stories that ultimately got Jesus killed. 
up until this point in the gospel, we find that Jesus has been healing people, he's been meeting with people, he's been helping people, and you don't kill the person who's healing people, that's the person you keep alive. Someone's coming along and they're, they're making the sick well, they're making the paralyzed walk, they're making the blind see. You want that person to be near you, but then Jesus begins to tell stories, and they challenge the norm of the day. They invite other people into the story, people that the Pharisees and the scribes felt were outside. And so Jesus begins to rewrite the whole narrative of the kingdom in their minds. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we'll jump down, uh, we'll jump in uh, at verse 11. It says this, Jesus continued the third of three stories. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This is a son who already owns everything, but he lives like he's got nothing. And the thing that he wants more than anything is freedom. And so he comes to his father, and this conversation, it sounds shocking to us, it would have been even more shocking to the audience in Jesus' day that he turns to his father and goes, in my bit of what you have, I want it now. You're better off to me dead, because I just want to be free. And he's lived, he's been looked after, he's been cared for by the Father, and yet he wants his thing. He wants to be in charge. And perhaps the most scandalous part of the story is that the Father then, he gives him what he wants. He releases him to go, if you want to be free, go and, and be free. In verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And so we see what happens next. It's a familiar story. He enjoys his freedom for a while. His freedom becomes failure as he runs out of everything that he has because he, he spends it all on, on the way that he wants. And then it ultimately leads to famine. And he finds himself with this desperate job of, of looking after the pigs, something that for any proud Jewish person in any story like this would have hated because this is something that would have made you ritually unclean. This is what Leviticus talked about. You don't associate with the pigs. You don't feed the pigs, and yet he has to go. He has to find someone who owns pigs, and he has to take up this job, which sets him apart as unclean. And so as this story starting to unfold, you can sort of imagine how it's cementing some of the stereotypes that people have. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are going, oh yes, the outsider. And the tax collectors and the sinners, they're probably beginning to identify, yeah, yeah, that's me, that's, that's us. And so the Pharisees, as they want to keep people on the outside, Jesus unpacks the story further. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
I think ultimately this story is, is about two things, and we're starting to see it unfold. It's this, this draw towards freedom and fullness. The son's had his moment of freedom, and yet now he's in that place that, if we're honest, we've all been in at some stage in our life. We know we have to say sorry, and yet it's that getting yourself to that point. And so he begins to rehearse his speech. He gets it ready. He thinks about, well, what's the only possible way that I can come back? He doesn't come back wanting his place, um, even the place of an ordinary slave. An ordinary slave would have, to a certain degree, been part of the family, but to be a hired servant is someone who could be dismissed at a day's notice. And he was coming in at the lowest position. The only way that my father will ever take me back is if I get on the bottom rung of the ladder and maybe I'll work my way up to regain his trust. And so if you're a tax collector, if you're a sinner, you're starting to think about what penance looks like. You're starting to think about, well, how do we pay back the Father? How do we make this right again? And at this point, if you're a Pharisee or a scribe, you're going, oh, yes, this is the point. Jesus, you tell them. Now unpack for an hour all of the reasons why these people could never be back in the family. Tell them all the things that they would have to do, all the, the loops that they would, or the hoops that they would have to jump through, all the things, and yet Jesus reframes the story. They're wondering, what on earth are you going to make them do? Let's have this list and tell them what they have to do because of what they've done. It's essentially that moment where the Pharisees are hoping that Jesus is going to remind this group of people that they're the outsiders, that they don't belong. And yet in verse 20, so he got up, and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father has been waiting. Can you picture him? He's holding on to hope. We don't know how long this period of time has been in the story, but his son, we can presume if he had a third of his father's wealth, was away for a while before he had that spent, was away a while longer as he kind of came to his senses, and then a bit longer again as he came home. And yet every day we get this picture of the father going, and whether it's standing at a window or at the top of the path and, and looking out and hoping that one day he'd see that figure of his son walking back home. He, hold, he held on to that hope because that's what home is. Home is a place of hope. And then on this day, he sees a figure that's worn down and, and worn out. Um, but as fathers know the walk of their son, he goes, that's my boy. That's my boy. And so he picks himself up and he runs, he lifts his garment, he begins running towards him. As we know, it's something that would not have been done in the day, especially by, by an older man like this. But such is the joy of the father that he accelerates as fast as he can to get towards his son. And one of the things that I love about this is that the son begins his sentence. We just heard it. It was well rehearsed. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's just about to get to the offer. 
He's just about to get to the point where he goes, here's the thing I can do to make this right. And the father steps in quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring in his finger, sandals on his feet, kill the calf, barbecue time. My son is home. He doesn't let him get to that point of feeling that he has to earn his way back to the father. The father meets him on the road and reminds him that he is a son, that he is part of the family. And these gifts that he's given are gifts that signify that. Bring the best robe. Well, the best robe in the house would have been the father's robe. The son would have been stinking. He'd been with pigs, he's been journeying home, he's probably not washed, and yet the father doesn't care. He throws this robe around him, he dresses him, he gives him that symbol of being part of the family by putting a ring on his finger. Servants would not have worn shoes, and yet he says, put shoes on his feet. This is my boy, he is home. And so we have this incredible, incredible moment of celebration. The grace of the father would have shocked the Pharisees. This is not how the story goes. (laughs) He has a price to pay. He has things that he needs to do. This needs to be put right. The father doesn't run. The father doesn't approach the son. This is a scandal. This is not how the story is meant to play out. And yet Jesus is redefining uh, the story for them. The beauty of Jesus' message is that it isn't about who's being kept out of the family. It's that everyone is invited into the family, that freedom can be found. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. In this moment, we see that the older brother, the Pharisee, he hears the sound of the party. And interestingly, he's not in conversation with the father. He's in conversation with the servant. He finds out along the way what's happened, and and he decides that this is not right, that in some way in his and his younger brother coming home, that he has been wronged in the process. And interestingly, it's the father who comes to him as well. He doesn't wait in at the party and send a servant out to fetch him or convince him. The father comes and he meets him where he's at, and they have this conversation. Verse 29, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? There's this huge party going on, and yet the older son feels like he's the victim. He feels like he has missed out. And it's in this moment that that Jesus throws the invitation to all, but he throws the challenge to the religious. He turns, and, and this older brother, well, he's, he's, he's sort of pleading his case. He's like, Dad, I've, I've served you. I've been like a slave in your presence, and, and you haven't even given me a young goat. Now, I've been in Ethiopia enough times to have eaten goat too many times in my life. 
if there is a barbecue inside and you want goat and you're sitting on the outside, your life priorities are wrong, okay? That is not the meal that you want. And, and yet he's pleading this case of the victim that you've never blessed me with anything. And yet this son has lived so close to the father, but has never realized the fullness of the relationship that the father has on offer to him. He always feels like he's been missing out. And I guess the, the thing is this, he's the older brother, but in the Christian walk, maturity is not necessarily linked to chronology. It's not how long you've been around Jesus that matters. It's how close to Jesus you've become. It's about how well you reflect the values of the family. And so this, this son, his relationship with the father has become stagnant. And so the, the father replies, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We find in this story that both brothers lose sight of their purpose and they lose sight of their identity. The younger brother believes that he wants freedom and yet as he runs away, as he does his own thing, he realizes that it ends in disaster. And this older brother, we see that he's not living in the fullness of the father's love. This relationship is not what it's meant to be. And so Jesus speaks to these two groups of people. He draws in those younger brothers, those tax collectors and sinners and says, just come home. Just come and be with the Father. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no line that you have to get across. Just come home. There's no excuse or well-rehearsed speech that you have to give. Just come home. And to those who felt like they were on the inside, to those who felt like they had got it all sorted out and all figured out, Jesus says, you are missing the most important thing. You're meant to have a relationship with the Father, and yet you've exchanged it for these rituals and religions. I guess it comes down to this, that both brothers have seen themselves in different ways as slaves and not sons. The younger brother thinks the only way back is to work for it, and the older brother thinks the only way to stay in is to work for it. And yet the father's heart is that he just wants relationship. He wants his sons to see who they are, that everything that he has is theirs, that he wants to bless them and love them and care for them. And he wants them to, to not live as slaves, but to recognize their sonship. And for us, that same message extends to us. In Ephesians, Paul says this, long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. This is the amazing truth that we get to celebrate, that we as sons and daughters can come home. And we don't need well-rehearsed speeches. We simply need to move in the direction of the Father. And the Father comes and meets us with overwhelming love and grace and mercy and joy as he restores to us our purpose and our identity as we become children of God. And then as we take that message and we share it to others. I had this thought yesterday I thought I'd everything kind of worked out that I was going to say this morning. And, and then this thought came to me that was this. What if on the way home, 
the younger brother had have met the older brother? What if that had have been the encounter that we discovered? What stories would he have been told about the father? How cross would the father have seemed? How devastated would the father have seemed? How much would the father have not wanted to welcome him back? Because he would have been told a completely different story. And yet we find that it's the father that he encounters. And for us, as people who love Jesus, we have the opportunity to go and to meet people on the road and to point them home, to tell them of the goodness, the joy, the grace, the love that we have found, to tell them about how good the Father is, and to simply help them get from here to the Father. That is our job as Christians. And as I thought about it, I thought about too many people who maybe in our wee part of the world have heard the wrong story about the Father, who feel that they can't come home to the Father because the Father would never accept them. What they have done is, is too much. What they've done could never be forgiven. That there's not even an excuse that they could use with their breath to communicate. And it's so wrong. And so as we go from here, we go into a world where we get to, to go and to call prodigals home, to point them to the Father's love, to point them to the Father's heart, to the Father's grace, to the Father's joy that exists as children come home. That's what we do as, as church. We invite people back into the family, realizing that the only way, as Paul said, that we're adopted into this family through Jesus Christ, through Him and through Him alone. For me, over the last six weeks or so of, of being in Burma and, uh, and being in Ethiopia, I guess the big thing that I felt that God has really been pressing into my heart is this idea of, of home and simply journeying with others to point them to the goodness of God. And uh, I was really, really excited to go to, to Burma six weeks ago when I left. Um, there was one person in particular that I wanted to meet. Uh, I've told you before of her, her name's Naomi. She's this little uh, baby girl that, that joined our home a few years ago. And I headed up to, to Tamu, which is a town on the Indian border, and, and got to spend time with her. But not just spend time with her, but to see how our family home has become exactly that. How every single day she is loved and looked after and cared for. Uh, the enormous privilege of sitting down with, with two of our staff, they're our house parents, they look after a whole load of kids, and, and just hearing their heart for this incredible girl. And um, I'm going to show you her story this morning, because as part of, of being there, we've got a bit of time to capture that. Um, so I want to just give you a little glimpse. Have a look. Thank you. 
love those words that I saw and knew that she was created in the image and likeness of God. This beautiful baby uh, left for reasons that we'll never know, um, but brought into a home, brought into a place where she'll come to know about the love of the Father. Um, given that love in such extravagant ways. This is what we get to do. And it's not just in the far corners of the world. It's, it's in every corner of our town. Uh, we headed off to, to Ethiopia a couple of weeks ago, conscious of time, so let me fly through. We arrived here in Bokaji after a short landing in Madrid that became a wee bit delayed a wee bit later. But we arrived down to, uh, to visit some of the kids, to spend time with them, to do uh, clubs with them, to take assemblies, to spend time just being with them, hearing their stories. And uh, as part of that, as, as you generously gave to some of the guys like uh, Steph and, and Tom and Emma who were heading out with me to go in to build beds, and uh, the guys had a brilliant time just a couple of weeks back just giving these beds to families, 40 families given uh, a better home, something that would keep them warm and safe, a simple sign of the love of the Father shown to them in these gifts uh, of beds. Um, and yet, as I think it was three weeks ago, however long ago it was, that I stood here and, and Chance prayed and, and sort of asked, well, what can we be praying for? And I said, you know, just that being open to what God will want us to do. Um, and while we were there, uh, this is Siraj, this is one of our, our kids. Um, while we were there, I heard a little bit of Siraj's story and it felt like it was very important that we went and visited his home. Uh, felt that that was something that, that God had for us to do. And uh, the first day we went up, no one there. Uh, we went up a bit later that day, no one there. We left a message to say, look, stay, we want to see you tomorrow morning. Um, Siraj's mum uh, passed away about three or four months ago. Um, Siraj's dad is, is blind. Um, there's four kids. Uh, Siraj is the oldest and then three younger siblings. And uh, so in this moment, we knew that life was going to be incredibly tough. And so we invited the kids into our children's home to look after them and to care for them. And uh, on the Saturday morning, I headed up and uh, met with Siraj's dad and stepped into that moment feeling helpless, to be honest, feeling a bit hopeless. Um, feeling like, what on earth can we do? This tiny little government house uh, where the rent was something like six burr per month. That's about 20p a month. You can imagine what this house was like. Nothing in it uh, apart from a bed that Stand By Me had provided a year ago. And as I sat and as I heard this guy's story, as I heard his, his heartache and his pain, we had the opportunity to breathe a little bit of hope into his story. He told us about how he goes and he begs in the middle of the town each day. He comes home with about 40p, but it costs him 10p to get up and down on a tuk-tuk because he's blind. He can't make that journey. And so uh, while we were there, the, younger, the youngest brother, who's just too young to join our home at the minute, was there. And one of the things I noticed, running around with a t-shirt and nothing else on. Uh, and so we did what we could. We grabbed money from our pockets and we gave him a gift to bless him and um, to show him the love of the Father. Um, and then we took him down into town and we didn't make him pay for a tuk-tuk that day and we got him breakfast and, and then we took uh, this little brother and we took him shopping and we bought him a pair of trousers. Um, and we ended up eventually, the team were out in the, the, the market at the time, and uh, I ended up down back on site by myself for uh, about two minutes of quiet. And in those two minutes of quiet, I went off broken. Um, just the scale of suffering and the hopelessness that there was. And yet in those couple of minutes, uh, God brought these words uh, to my mind. Isaiah 58, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? 
to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am, to draw alongside others and to point them to the love of the Father. I'm conscious we're tight for time. Emma's going to come and share just a little bit of her experience. So that's kind of hard to follow. Um, so yeah, this is my that was this was my second time um, in Bokaji, and um, as you know, a lot of people from church were there the last time. And this photograph on the left is my little sponsor boy Tasfai. And he was in kindergarten when we were there the last time. And um, while I had already sponsored a child in Uganda, I kind of thought that box was ticked for me. But the experience I had in Bokaji the last time of how much the children love and adore their sponsor family and include that sponsor family as their own family. Um, on this trip, one of Johnny's little sponsor kids, um, Adana, has in his pocket the most battered photograph of Johnny and Laura and the kids, and at every opportunity, you know John, you know John, and we're like, yeah, I, I came here with him, <laughs> you know, but, and every opportunity, and this photograph has been in and out of that child's pocket hundreds of times. They really just, you know, really adore and love their sponsor family and love hearing, and I know a lot of you guys already sponsor children. They love getting that contact. They love knowing who you are and your family, and they really, it's a big deal for them. But Tas Fai, two years ago, was in kindergarten, and when I met him on the last day, he was a wee bit overwhelmed and didn't really understand. And in the two years then, I've been sending photographs and write and a birthday present or a Christmas gift, you know, from time to time. But I didn't know going back whether or not he would know me or I just didn't know what to expect. But I was excited to meet him again. And when we arrived on the day, you're confronted after your big long trip of this tidal wave of children coming at you and on the first day and it's very exciting for them and we're all tired but it lifts your you lift your game. And into my hand came this little hand and when I looked down it was Tasfry and he was like is your name Emma? And I was like, yes. And my heart just ran out of my toes at that point. And for the next week, he went everywhere. Every time I came out, he was there. And he, I, he really enjoyed spending time with me. And I loved spending time with him. And so he's in kindergarten. He's in grade two now. That's P2. And he speaks English along with his two other languages that they speak there. So three languages in P2 is really quite incredible. And that's what strikes me. These children are intelligent, they're funny, they're joyful, they love, love, genuinely love being at school. It's their way to, they can see that it's an opportunity they wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, and I, although his English isn't great, it was definitely fun. I also then had the opportunity to go with Tasfai and meet 
his mum at his house. It was a joy because he was one of the children that was getting one of the beds that we had made, and I didn't know that until the day we were gone. And then that kind of broke me, thinking that here's this little boy and his family, and they've never slept in a bed, and this was going to be the first time he'd slept in a bed. And this was a child that I knew and had spent time with, and what child would here would I, do I know that I would allow to sleep on the floor? And you wouldn't, and here's this just my now extended family in Bokaji that um, was just such a blessing to be able to go with him that day. Um, that's his mum and he has a little sister and he is the man in the house and we went to his home that day and as we helped move the old bed out which was really just sticks and a sheet and moved the new bed in and we got served warm spiced sweet tea and bread rolls and it was just an absolute joy to be part of that it was so great and so you know child sponsorship is um just such a thing for me these kids are so intelligent and funny and i know i've said this before but every time i'm there it strikes me that in the minds of one of these little children who may never other than stand by me get an opportunity at education and here could there be the cure for cancer world poverty war could there be a gem in one of these little brains that could help us all in our western living and but for the lack of sharing resources and that that's something that really weighs on my heart when i'm there and um yeah so this is just it has also really um, encouraged me to stay much more uh, faithful and in contact with the other child that i sponsor in uganda who prior to me going here probably never heard from me um yeah so that's Thank you, Emma. Um, let me finish with this quote, uh, and then I'll pray, and then uh, people can probably go and get the kids. Uh, this is probably one of those quotes that I imagine most people have heard of before, but for me, it only kind of landed on my radar in the last couple of months by Mother Teresa. The problem with the world is that we draw the circle of our family too small. And I guess for me, that's been the big challenge of the last six weeks, that as people, as Christians, as church, we get to throw open the doors uh, of the family home. and We get to point people back to the Father. We get to invite people into uh, the story of the Father to see that they're loved, that they're cared for, that there's joy and grace and hope to be found in the Father's love. It's the story of the prodigal, and there's many prodigals in our world looking for that place to call home. And so as we go into this week, we get to throw open the doors of family. We get to invite people in. We get to point them to the Father and to His love and to His grace. Um, Emma touched on it there. Um, that significance of just being part of another person's story. And we look after three and a half thousand kids around the world and we try and connect all of them with someone who'll be part of their family, who'll invite them in. And we've currently about 400 kids who need someone to stand by them and to sponsor them. And so um, if you'd like to chat about that afterwards, we have a little stand outside Emma and I'll be there. We'll uh, bend your ears with stories and tell you lots of the incredible changes that are happening in kids' lives. But if you want to be part uh, of their story, please come and speak to us. Uh, this morning. Let's finish uh, by praying. Father, we thank you so much uh, that you created, you instigated family. God, we thank you that you invite us to be part of it. God, that everything that you've created, you want us to enjoy. Father, that just as the prodigal heard and as the older brother heard, everything I have is yours. And God, as you uh, respond so generously with your love and your grace to us, we want to respond in the family likeness. God, to say that everything we have 
is yours. Every opportunity, every moment, every relationship that we have, it's yours. And so, God, as we go from here, would we meet people on the road home? Would we meet people on that journey back? God, would we be the voices of hope that point them to the love of the Father? And God, as we do that, that as people make that journey, they would see the Father running towards them, surrounding them in love and joy. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.